Back in the 1850s, engineers were battling with one of the greatest challenges of the day. How to speed up global communications. Telegraph cables had quickly come to cross counties, countries, even continents. But when they got to the sea, information had to be sent via ship. A mission that took weeks, if not months. There had to be a better way. And there was. Crossing oceans with subsea telegraph cables. But this was so difficult. So challenging. That it became a lesson in perseverance and ingenuity. To achieve this incredible feat, cables had to be redesigned and engineers needed to develop a new generation of megaship. These ships had to be big enough to carry over 4,000 kilometres of telegraph cables, which had the same weight as 3,000 elephants. Innovation and determination were needed in bucket loads, as attempt after attempt to cross the Atlantic failed. But eventually, their perseverance paid off, and in 1866, a transatlantic telegraph cable was successfully laid between Ireland and Newfoundland in Canada. It was a location with a relatively shallow, uniform seabed, perfect for laying cables on. This new ability to send 12 words a minute from the UK to the US revolutionised global communications. And by the turn of the century, a network of subsea cables soon circumnavigated the globe. Over 100 years later, and subsea communication cables have become even more important as fibre optics replaced telephony and the internet revolutionised data transmission. But although technology's moved on, there are some challenges that remain the same. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And in this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to learn about a project that demonstrates how perseverance is just as important now as it was in the 1800s. Not only is technical innovation critical, but so is international cooperation and working with unpredictable weather. The world may be connected with over one million kilometres of fibre optic communication cables, but some areas are better connected than others. Africa has the world's lowest internet penetration. 20 years ago, only 2% of the population had an internet connection. Despite investment in subsea cable systems in both the east and the west of Africa, accessibility of online services is still poor and only 22% of the population is connected, compared to about 80% of Europeans. There are already cables installed in Africa, but the capacity that will be delivered with to Africa is just much more than what is already installed. The target is also to, to ensure that we can enable more connectivity inland, because having subsea cable if you don't have terrestrial connection, you know, it's not enough. This is Cynthia Perret, Submarine Systems Programme Manager at Facebook, which is one of eight partners investing in the new subsea fibre optic cable to improve African internet connectivity. The project is called Two Africa, and it's the longest, highest capacity subsea cable ever installed. Circumnavigating the entire continent of Africa, it requires almost 40,000 kilometres of cable. That's the same as the circumference of the Earth. Two Africa is just today the longest, biggest, 
newest subsea project ever built. So it's it's really, uh, you know, it's a once in a lifetime project. A once in a lifetime project with many advantages. The first one is growth, because when you reach more people, you enable more businesses, you have more infrastructure, so it can also help for medicine, it can help for schools, uh, education. So, so there is a lot of, of benefit with that. And the other one is also avoiding loss, because when you have only one cable, for example, reaching your country, the cable is cut, the country will be in the dark for several days and the loss per day is huge. So by bringing diversity, you, you also allow to avoid that part. So, so it's a double benefit. It's creating the growth, but also ensuring that the current assets are safer. It's also expected that the new cable will encourage increased investment in Africa's terrestrial network. So operators will also be willing to invest more on the terrestrial part and connect more people. But, but it's not just about capacity, it's also about reliability. Uh, several countries have only one access on the subsea cable, so when it is cut, they are just isolated from, from the world. This became all too apparent in January of 2020, when the West Africa cable system that supplies connectivity to countries on the West Coast all the way down to South Africa was damaged in two locations requiring immediate repairs. Services throughout Africa were affected and it highlighted just how vulnerable the continent is to disruptions in supply. So the previous technology, uh, one country was dependent on the neighbouring countries. With that new technology, we can do some configuration, which means when you're located in one country, if something wrong happened, to your neighboring country, you are not impacted, which was not always the case before. So we are really bringing all that on the table, more capacity, diversity, more reliability. As well as this improved redundancy, the system is employing new types of fiber optic cable, SDM1, made by Alcatel, that can carry more fiber optic cable pairs. And today, uh, what we are doing is we have up to 16 fiber pair, and each of the fiber pair can go up to minimum 12 terabytes per second and up to 20, 25, depending, you know, the length of the system. So, so it, it's, it's a huge increase. Considering that the first generation of fiber optic cables of the 1970s could carry 45 megabits per second, the growth in capacity has been almost exponential. But capacity isn't everything. Redundancy is just as important. And technical innovation in the branching units that provide in-country connection will provide increased flexibility. Today, we have, I would say, uh, smarter technologies, which means that within the branching unit, you are just extracting some wavelengths. You don't need to extract the full fibre. So when the country is being cut, you can reconfigure your wavelengths when you want to reach another country and you are not dependent on that specific country in that specific branch. So that's kind of a, of a big evolution. And, and in the case of to Africa, because we have so many countries connected, it's pretty important because when you are, for example, uh, in Mozambique, you don't want to depend on what is going on in the neighboring country. Of course, before Africa benefits from this new connectivity, the cable has to be manufactured and installed on the seabed and linked into 25 countries. A number that's actually growing as more African nations seek to benefit from the project. The scale of the project itself is a, is a challenge by itself. This is Fred Casanerve, who is in charge of the marine-related aspects of the Two Africa project for the main contractor Alcatel Submarine Networks, or ASN. 
So it was awarded to SN in uh, March uh, 2020. And we are currently in the engineering and survey phase uh, before uh, starting the installation next year. Alcatel is quite unique in the communications world because not only is it a cable manufacturer and supplier, it's also a major contractor. We are the only one who can deliver turnkey project, uh, which, is, which is the main difference to our competitor. For Two Africa, and in fact for most cable installation projects, the first step is for the bidding team to work up a preliminary route based on the customer's requirements. So Fred and his team have an idea of the route and the onshore landing points for the new connection and work up price estimates for bidding for the project. Once the contract's awarded, more detailed research can begin. So once the project is live, that's where the, the desk, uh, desktop study starts. And what we're going to do, we're going to refine these routes in order to provide a detailed enough route to the survey contractor for them to survey the route. So there is a phase where we do engineering. We have a very large database for ocean bathymetry, for example, where we're going to refine these routes and we're going to take care or we're going to take into account experience from previous cable. Uh, we're going to take care of uh, all the oil and gas uh, licenses that we're going to cross. Uh, we're going to take care of the countries, the territorial waters, the economic zone that we're going to go through. So there are a large amount of inputs uh, which are taken into account during the engineering phase for us to prepare a package for the survey company uh, then to go offshore and survey the route. In this case, the survey company is Fugro, which has had to contend with a wide array of challenges in collecting data about the entire continent of Africa. Some of those challenges were the same issues that faced the engineers of the 1800s. Bad weather, for example. But some, like COVID-19, are very much of the present day. So the Fugro Gauss, she's currently in the Djibouti area. So we are conducting the survey work on the Djibouti branch. And the Fugro supporter is currently working on the Ivory Coast branch. And the Fugro Meridian is working at the Irish or UK branch. This is Bastien Bichon, who manages the cable route survey for Fugro. Surveying's taking part in three campaigns with each vessel charting a different area. Geophysical data about the seabed along a 500 metre corridor either side of the proposed cable route is being gathered using tools such as multi-beam echo sounders, side scan sonar and comb penetration testing. All of this data is critical in planning the most stable route for cable, which in waters deeper than about 1500 metres can be simply placed on the seabed but any shallower than this, and it needs to be buried for its own protection. But it can't be buried just anywhere, and careful analysis of the seabed is needed to make sure that the vessel-mounted plough, which Fred will tell us about later, can place the cable safely. So we, we, we try to avoid areas where, for example, there is a steep slope which could be unstable. We try to avoid areas of seismicity, volcanicity, all sort of, you know, areas which could be creating a hazard for the cable. You know, what we like is a, is, is a very simple seabed. You could call it boring if you want, but that's, uh, that, these are the best. René Devazac de Morin 
is the service line manager for hydrography at Fugro. Our aim is to not only find a, a boring and regular seabed, but also one which is relatively soft in the area that is going to be buried, even actually in the non-buried area, which is deeper, simply because it's, um, it's nice to have a cable which lands on the soft seabed and kind of like a self-bury itself to a certain degree. We want to avoid places of very hard uh, seabed surface because uh, sometimes you have deep water currents that can affect the, the, the cable over the time of, of the, the lifetime of the cable and by abrasion create even faults. Although the survey vessels are now making good progress, COVID-19 caused significant problems for everyone on the project as the campaign began in June 2020, when much of the world went into lockdown. Certainly COVID-19 was a systematically a, a, a problem for us. We were reminded of, of the difficulty on, on a, a weekly basis because we had with three vessels, we had to move uh, around a lot of people. There are about anywhere between, say, around 15 scientists on each vessel. You have a, the vessels are manned by about anywhere between 15 and 20 people. So you end up with about, you know, 35 people that need to move around right at the time when every single country were still trying to find their footing with regards to what travel restrictions uh, they were going to impose. We had to, to, to carry on working, uh, which, which of course was very difficult for us, but certainly a lot more difficult for the guys who were out there offshore. This soon became the longest offshore survey ever undertaken for many of the team after international travel restrictions made it impossible to change crews in different locations. The survey team from South Africa, therefore, had to stay on board, something that Bastian said they did willingly to keep the project on track. They've been, been there for, for, for weeks, for months, so we, we are talking about three to four to five months being on that vessel, working every single day, seven days a week, and, and, and keep pushing this project forward and keeping it alive and, and, and making all this progress and everything happening. And if this wasn't hard enough, rough weather at the start of the campaign, which coincided with winter in South Africa, delayed the start for the Fugro Gauss and the Fugro Supporter. In general, what we didn't expect is the amount of, let's say, bad weather we faced uh, in the, the South African area. So obviously we have mid-ocean models uh, that, we, that we look at and we take those timings and, and, and uh, let's say, likelihoods into account uh, and workabilities in, in, into the proposal stage, let's say. But, but we, we didn't expect that much of, of, of bad weather hitting us on, on, a, on a, let's say, more or less continuous basis. The only option was to wait it out, just like engineers would have done in the 1800s. Of course, the bad weather passed and the Eastern Campaign is set to be the first survey to be completed – ASN's already manufacturing the cable at its factory in France, and Fred expects to begin installation this winter. Just to give you a, a, an order of magnitude, the, the system is so large that we'll have to install five different vessels for installing only the east part of the system. And, and that's going to take us through the entire 2022 
layer. So uh, that's going to be quite, uh, quite complex. In very deep water, the cable can simply be placed on the seabed. The process is very fast with rates of 200 kilometers per day. But when it enters the shallower depths of 1500 to 1000 meters and has to be buried, this is a slower process. 10 times slower, in fact. The cable is more exposed in the shallow water area. So that's why usually we try to reach as soon as we can the, the, the deeper waters because the, the, we know the cable is going to be uh, safer uh, there. And in terms of economics as well, you, you want the straightest uh, route as possible. Uh, but again, you'll have to take into account the oil and gas concessions, uh, the um, territorial waters, the economic zone, uh, and so on. Finding the safest and most cost-effective route is therefore a balancing act. But cable burial is inevitable, and for this the team needed to select the most boring, flat, soft, unencumbered route available. Depending on the conditions, other layers of protection might also be needed. And this is why the data is so important. The more the cable is exposed, the more we're going to protect it. So we have many four types of, uh, of uh, cable. What we call a lightweight cable, lightweight protected, and then single armor and double armor. And the armoring are, are steel wires, uh, which are uh, protecting the core uh, part of the cable, which are the fibers. Submarine cables have to withstand all kinds of conditions. Temperatures could be very cold and highly variable. The cables must tolerate the water pressure at various depths. They must withstand movement from subsea currents. They must not weather as they brush along the surface. At shallower depths, they risk collisions with other operations from fishing boats to commercial shipping activities. In many ways, these hazards are the same as those facing the first ever cables laid under the sea. But unlike those early copper wires that were wrapped in a naturally occurring non-conductive plastic known as gutta percha before being contained in a tar-soaked jute, today's cables are highly engineered. The pairs of hair-thin fibre-optic wires are held inside a steel tube cushioned by a thixotropic jelly, which is then reinforced with steel wires and encased in a copper conductor before being wrapped in polyethylene, over the top of which the insulation layer is added, and this forms the core. Further layers of steel armour are added for additional protection, which generally increases as the water depth decreases. We have two means of burying the cable, main one being uh, the, the, the plow. Sitting on the back of the vessel. Which is uh, sliding on the seabed and at the same time burying the cable to a given depth specified by the contact. For two Africa, the burial depth is expected to be around two metres. The other method for cable burial involves the use of a remotely operated vehicle, ROV. This is particularly useful when the cable is crossing a pipeline or other subsea infrastructure, because the plough is so enormous, the team are very careful not to risk it affecting existing assets. Usually we stop the burial with the plough uh, 500 metres away from a pipeline crossing, we recover the plow on board, we surface lay the cable uh, across the, the, the pipeline, but then we can come back with the ROV and do some jetting burial uh, in order to maximize the protection in the vicinity of the pipeline. And then there are the landing points. Locations where the cable meets the mainland. The selection of the, of the landing location is key. A vertical cliff face would not make a good landing location. 
So usually a nice uh, sandy beach is, a, is an ideal uh, location for that <laughs> because we know we'll have uh, easy access for the, for the machinery from the land and uh, we know that we will be able to bury the cable as well. Ideally, the sandy beach will be met by water depths that drop off quite quickly. But if the cable can't be dragged onto shore, the team will have to pre-install the connection. To work out the exact conditions at each landing site requires local knowledge and further site investigation. Usually, we go on site for assessing whether it is a good location or not. So we had to rethink the whole process during the, 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 the pandemic. And we've been very much using local resources through our uh, subcontractors who were able to go on site, discuss with the people there. We had a lot of remote meetings as well. It wasn't just the site investigations for the landings that needed local involvement. Every single country of the 25 that is to benefit from this connection had its own permitting process, both for the offshore surveys and for onshore investigations. Bastian says this was a huge task for Fugro, made even more challenging by COVID-19. As you can imagine, that's quite a lot of work because you have to talk to many authorities and stakeholders, receive their permission on an objection. So the, 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 the whole COVID-19 situation didn't make our lives easy. The team had to turn to virtual meetings, virtual site visits, and the huge databases of data that they had already amassed when carrying out work on other projects. Of course, this wasn't always straightforward. The lack of bandwidth and connectivity is the very issue that 2Africa is seeking to address, so virtual communications were not always possible. To get these vital permissions, therefore, turned into a huge team effort. There was a lot of uh, communication required, as well as, I would say, uh, cooperation between uh, Fugro, Alcatel, as well as Facebook, so that we all uh, are pulling at the same string and putting all our efforts in there together to, to, to get the, the permissions in place. If we want the project to be successful, we need to work together. So responsibilities are defined, but any, anywhere where we see someone should step in to help, we, we'll do that. And yes, indeed, COVID has, has made things a bit, I, I wouldn't say more difficult, because it, it, it is fascinating to see how people have been able to adapt. But it's just, it is slowing everything down. But just like the great adventurers laying the first subsea cables of the 1800s, these challenges have not prevented the project from moving ahead. Perseverance, ingenuity and hard work are ensuring that important data is being gathered. Data that's critical in making sure that the cable route is in the best possible location. For example, in Tanzania the route had to be changed because of huge surface sediment waves, which could have caused the buried cable to be exposed at a later date. So in that case, it's, it's just a current-driven event. Yeah, so we have to take that into account for the engineering as well. So that's why we provide Architel all their data so they can make their assessment in regards of the burial. As the survey continues, Fred is also learning a lot more about the proposed landing sites, as in some cases, they meet them in real life for the first time. So uh, it may happen that during the survey operation, we survey an alternative landing, which ultimately will become the primary landing because we think we have found better features for installing the cable there. Projects like To Africa are critical if the African Union is to meet its goal of ensuring digital connectivity for all by 2030. A feat that the UN predicts will bring 1.1 billion people online and require investment of $100 billion over the current decade. If this is successful, 
it will provide massive new opportunities for education, business and economic growth. This ambition was set out even before the global pandemic, which has further highlighted the importance of global connectivity and the terrible inequalities facing countries around the world that don't have this infrastructure. It seems that certainly with what we've been going through since COVID-19, the need for this cable is not going away. On the contrary, it is increasing there will be an after COVID-19 uh, where people, I think, will travel less and think first about calling people and, and linking via video. And all this is done thanks to underwater cables. Pre-COVID, uh, the statistic is that it's, there's about 98% of all the communications that go through submarine cables this statistic is only going to go up. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Our producers are Bernadette Ballantyne, Alex Conacher, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Will North, Velo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written by Bernadette Ballantyne and co-hosted by me, Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own subsea adventurer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Fugro, and thanks also to Facebook and ASN. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.